You are listening to DBN, Demigod Broadcasting Network, and this is Exploring Olympus. Good afternoon. My name is Elizabeth Alfreda Brindley Smite, and I will be your host for this lecture series. We are broadcasting with a live studio audience from the historic Sottington Abbey, located in the breathtaking town of St. Thomas, Scotland, on the coast of Fife. Today's special guest lecturer is one that I have known for many years, and I am incredibly proud to call a very distant acquaintance. It was during his early years at Oxford University that our guest made his first of many discoveries, a previously unknown Saxony tomb dating back to 600 A.D., containing what was thought to be a mummified unicorn. However, after thorough investigation, it was determined to be a cross-dressing hippogriff, a first of its kind and rather groundbreaking discovery, especially in this part of Great Britain. Our guest went on to become a famous supernatural and demigod historian, hosted his own television series, titled Let's See What We Can Discover, and has established himself as a social media influencer and pet video aficionado. It is my pleasure to present Dr. Sebastian Brackenridge as he enlightens us about Gorgons. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's, oh, you're so kind. Thank you. What a welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Yes, it's me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, for that wonderful introduction. Oh. And, of course, Bravo Soddington Arts Trust. Well, hello, chickens. Isn't this a fine kettle of fish? It's apparently a brave new world when the likes of me stand on the very stage that Margaret Thatcher, Winston Churchill, and Anne Boleyn once stood. You know, I've often wondered why procedures organizations like the Abbey would tempt fate by giving someone like me, who is both unpredictable and controversial, a room full of people, and a microphone, and no restrictions on what subject or what words are about to come out of my mouth. I'm so excited I could just spit. And I never do that. Literally, when I got the call for this opportunity, my first reaction was, Are you serious? And right before I opened the main cathedral door and stepped through, I was pretty surprised I didn't burst into flames. Or not a single statue cried tears of blood. Mm. Kind of disappointing when you think of it. So... I'm needing to be the center of attention. I want everyone to put down your phones because we all know 
the trials and tribulations and candy crush world can wait. And let's see if my little song and dance is of interest to you. And let's be perfectly honest, having eye candy like me to look at should be enough. Oh shit, that's right. Part of this is going over on the radio. Well, I guess I'm not going to be able to please everyone. But let's try anyway. Gorgon. Latin. Derived from the ancient Greek word horgon, meaning grim, terrifying, and dreadful. There are few words in supernatural society that strike more fear than the word gorgon. That is, of course, if you exclude words like moist and panties, which I find more disgusting rather than the horror associated with the gorgons. At least we forget the terror associated with ordering a non-fat soy latte and finding whipped cream on the top. I mean, what has the world come to? So yes, we are led to believe they're scary, ugly, and able to kill with a single glance. But is that really all there is to it? Would a television makeover do? Or do the Gorgons remind us of what the Olympians did to the supernatural and demigod community? A history we are all too ready to push away. Could Medusa and her sisters be the first documented case for the Me Too movement? Did the Olympians ruin what was once a very fashionable toga trend? Those familiar with the mythos surrounding the Gorgons understand the following. It all began with a young maiden named Medusa and her unwillingness to conform to the ancient Greek definition of what a woman was. In other words, be good, obey your parents, don't touch your Susie while in public, get married, obey your husband, and spend the rest of your days scrubbing floors and changing nappies as you push out one baby after another. Doesn't that sound delightful? I can't wait to get married. Uh, this concept horrified Medusa, and she rebelled against her parents, deciding to become a chaste priestess, preferring solitude and prayer in the Temple of Athena, known in modern times as the Parthenon. However, finding solitude was not so easy for the glamorous girl about town, it was said that her milkshake brought all the boys to the yard, and she soon became the talk of Athens, as word spread about the priestess whose astounding kindness and grace were equally matched with her breathtaking beauty. She literally was the Becky of every group, and don't you dare look at me that way. We all know a Becky, and we all hate her. The sight of Medusa left some to fall on their knees and begin violently masturbating as they scream, Hey, baby, like what you see? Or the equally demeaning, Prayer isn't the only reason I'm going to get you on your knees. Keep in mind, Fire Island 2015, the same thing happened to me. And it was indeed concerning. And, well, a slight turn on. But... Medusa ignored the catcalls and lusty glances, guarding her virginity, as was required, and continuing her life of charity, prayer, and compassion. 
Until that one fateful day, after highlights and a deep conditioning treatment, her luxurious tresses of spun gold caught the eye of Poseidon, god of the sea. Like the kingdom he ruled over, Poseidon was rather temperamental and a bit of a man-whore, who knew his way around the occasional swinger and key party, and was rumored to be a regular attendee of New York's infamous Studio 54. Like all Olympians and Trump supporters, he believed it was his right to take whatever he wanted. Regardless of the danger, he put the object of his obsession and others in by doing so. Poseidon set his sights on Medusa, and it didn't matter in the least that Medusa served in the temple of his Olympian rival, Athena. Truth be told, I'm sure Poseidon found it delicious that the young maiden served in Athena's temple and enjoyed the opportunity of giving Athena the middle finger. He was more than myth for having lost that wager he had with Athena regarding who was top dog deity of choice for the city of Athens. However, the maiden, in a respectful and genteel manner, told Poseidon to, well, sod off, wanker, I'm a lady. My extensive research shows that this reaction might have something to do with a fish allergy Medusa had suffered since birth. Now, naturally, if he looked anything like Jason Samoa, I would have kept an EpiPen and a bottle of calamine lotion around. Somebody has to take one for the team. Fearing for her safety, Medusa begged her sisters, Steno and Euralia, to help her hide in the Temple of Athena, thinking Poseidon would never look for her there. Hello, unfortunately. Poseidon did find her there. And while he was forcing himself onto the maiden, Medusa called out to Athena for help. Now, Athena, a somewhat selfish and vain goddess who was known for wearing way too much covergirl makeup, loving to sport a K-plus-eight haircut from season two, and hairy armpits, was more than slightly jealous of Medusa's beauty. She was horrified to see her temple being violated because we all know some stains do not come out of marble. She took her wrath out on Medusa, even as Medusa pleaded for her sister's release. And she even took full responsibility for her own rape. I mean, Becky, get off the cross. Somebody needs the wood. But Athena saw Medusa wrinkle her nose at the armpit stains on the goddess's tunic. A total Becky move. And she decided that was well beyond the pale. I don't blame her. Athena's horrific punishment, of course, transformed the three sisters into creatures so terrifying and hideous that to look upon them would turn the spectator into stone, which, might I add, was very rude indeed, and thereby ensuring the sisters' dance cards would remain permanently blank. To make matters worse because Athena loved her drama, the forlorn sisters soon discovered living among Athenian society would generally be frowned upon, 
as their short journey home left many Grecian citizens with the awkward task of dealing with a ridiculous amount of oh, unflattering statues resembling family members and friends who mysteriously disappeared the very day the sculptures were discovered. Within a day, the streets of Athens were very untidy indeed. Uh, think New York after midnight on December 31st, having been papered over with missing person scrolls. The Hellenic Women's Club for the Beautification of Athens Streets, Parks, and Squares, a group of women who are beyond anal and not in a good way, were scandalized at how these scrolls and statues were haphazardly placed all throughout the city with little concern for balance, color, and overall feng shui. Not to be outdone, the Athenian Association of Very Critical Art Critics did not hold back as they viciously panned the unknown and mysterious sculptor as a one-note failure, although I should note. The statue soon found a global cult following and can be found in the gardens of the nobility and glitterati alike. Unable to keep up with the public's demand for more sculptures, fame can be so tiring as the money kept rolling in from everywhere. Medusa decided it was time to give up living in Athens. To add insult to injury, members of a new cult calling itself Worshippers of the Gorgonian Race had begun climbing the Three Sisters' garden walls in hopes of achieving some sort of immortality by becoming a Gorgon work of art that could grace an Athenian villa, public square, or, if the person had been posed correctly, a public toilet. Witnesses overheard Medusa bemoaning the cost of shipping, considering cotton ship transport prices had gone through the roof. Euralia, the long-suffering and passive-aggressive sister, who, by the way, had the most disgusting wart on her upper lip, and that wart had nothing to do with the transformation, I must tell you, had grown weary of dealing with returns and manning the customer complaint department. I mean, how many times can a girl state, well, I am sorry, but all sales are final, or sorry, we don't do groups. This isn't a Sears portrait studio. Even if Euralia hired people to help with order of fulfillment, which she did, her sister Steno had the annoying habit of playing peekaboo with new employees. And we can certainly guess how each game ended. As for Steno, well, she was the Forrest Gump of the group, as she had always been a few sandwiches short of picnic. You see, the Gorgon transformation had greatly impacted her poor mind. God bless her pea-sized brain. So much that the two other sisters grew increasingly frustrated with dealing with the statue business and Steno's new habit of greeting her sisters by cutting wind so loudly, birds would take flight, only to fall to the ground and shatter, which Steno would leave for the others to clean up. This also happened with squirrels, rabbits, groundhogs, and skunks. So, the three sisters... Established residency on a remote island, often referred to as the Isle of Sunset, or 
the island of the dead. And there they live to this very day, leaving many Athenians and the last few Gorgonian worshippers to wonder whatever became of the three sisters. As the sisters were never heard from again, the legend surrounding their horrific appearance and their inability to find a decent maid or gardener, well, the Gorgon sisters' legend grew as fear of them spread among human and demigod societies. So, that brings us to present day, as I am sure many of you are dying to ask why. Why would Dr. Sebastian Brackenridge, world-famous historian and social media icon, want to bring up the Gorgons? Because, well, it's very unlikely anyone has had the opportunity to sit down for a cuppa with a Gorgon. And besides, could there really be anything new about the sisters? Well, to those naysayers, I say rubbish. There might actually have been a few people to enjoy this magical creature's hospitality. Even if very few of them lived to tell the tale. But based on my theory, uh, copyright pending, if it doesn't exist, it probably does. There certainly would have to be at least one or two individuals who are not turned into a birdbath. A, a peer and close friend of mine, Dr. Emily Wattsworth Movella, who specializes in spectral psychology, which is very fascinating, um, including the examination of how an overabundance of ectoplasm can be tied to madness or possibly sexual arousal in those entities who exist in between our world and the underworld, uh, convinced me otherwise, and urged me on by saying to me, Dr. Breckenridge, world-famous historian, who has many times removed a distant cousin of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and number 12,456 in line to the British throne. No, I did not tell her that. She said, you must continue your research to the very end, no matter the conclusion. Well, I was shocked and taken aback. My first reaction was to say, you silly fag hag, for the last time I'm gay. Now please put on your skirt and blouse. However, that push and, well, the sight of Dr. Wattsworth Movella's cottage cheese thighs was what I needed. My desire to know the truth drove me to such distraction that I didn't even return the calls of my very own personal shopper at Harrods. And this was during the annual 50% off all men's fashion sale. And before I could say, oh mother, not before entering my bedroom, I found it. And this is how a randy farm and a book started my investigation. I present for your consideration the interesting case of Sir Geoffrey Keenan of Ballater, Scotland. Sir Geoffrey, a rather striking demigod, was a fawn. A fawn is a supernatural, half-human, half-goat demigod who first made a most inappropriate appearance around 700 BC 
during a garden party given by the goddess Persephone. Additionally, uh, Sir Geoffrey had the distinction of being directly connected to the satyr subset, another demigod, uh, which lends to my research a clear explanation for why he suffered from a constant erection and an inability to wear skinny jeans. Sir Geoffrey was known for his supernatural ability of persuasion, which is an ability to charm anyone to do whatever he wanted by simply playing his pan flute. Now, I must state that that was quite an ability, because the sound of the pan flute is hated about as much as music from Yanni and Enya combined. In addition to his musical talents, Sir Geoffrey had the ability to transform between his mortal and fawn physical forms easily, thereby becoming both extremely hairy and, when aroused, rather naughty indeed. Uh, this last fact was noted by many of his male and female conquests, as Sir Geoffrey considered himself an equal opportunity player. Now, I do want to be clear on one thing. I'm of the mindset that everyone should simply pick a team. None of this, uh, I don't like labels, or uh, it's about who the person is, or uh, catfishing on Grinder. I mean, really. Sorry, but I digress. He was also known for his comedic timing due to his short-lived career as a stand-up comedian, in which fans would always welcome Sir Geoffrey to the stage by shouting, Hey, Geoffrey, what's under your kilt? To which he would reply, Your mother's lipstick. Or something equally vulgar, which I will not detail at this moment. What most didn't know about Sir Geoffrey was that he was an undercover reporter for the Demigod Inquirer, a local Olympian rag that dealt with all sorts of sordid topics that are not discussed in polite company. And before you can ask, I only have a subscription to the paper for research sake. Well, and the page four hunk. Anyway, uh, Sir Geoffrey, uh, he wrote under the gossip columnist pen name of, and this is really rather vulgar, it's even too much for me, uh, <laughs> Lady Lillian Graham Swallows. I mean... <laughs> Lady Lillian Graham Swallows. Well, I'm glad somebody does. <laughs> I have concluded that it was this secret identity that led Sir Geoffrey to his untimely disappearance. It was during the summer of 2016 when our determined reporter slash comedian decided he needed a break from the Scottish Highlands, as he had grown tired of leaning up against trees and prancing around in meadows waiting for someone to satisfy his unquenchable lust. So off he went to the Grecian island of Mykonos for some sun, warmth, and perhaps a little romance. Well, romance was exactly what he found with numerous partners. And per his journal entries, all paled in comparison to his final conquest. A beautiful woman with, and um, I want to quote him directly, 
had the most unusually bright green eyes and a slight greenish, somewhat scaly complexion problem. At the time, Sir Geoffrey attributed the latter to a combination of dry skin and what he assumed must be a chronic case of uh, motion sickness for the olive-skinned stranger. According to the bartender, with the most unfortunate name of Miss Diamond Gavatitis. I mean, seriously, is it just me, or does that sound like something that you need penicillin to clear up? Well, anyway, uh, according to Miss Gavatitis, who was a college student working summers on Mykonos, uh, Sir Geoffrey did not waste any time seducing the reluctant, yet very mysterious beauty, and after several songs on his pan flute, including the all-time favourite, the Bonnie Lass of 5EO. Imagine that. That song on a pan flute. Ugh. Along with several straight shots of tequila and numerous boilermakers, Witnesses had the pleasure of seeing Sir Geoffrey prance around wearing the woman's black brassiere as goggles and her combination spanks and granny panties as a somewhat floppy hat. By all accounts, most bar patrons were amazed at how Sir Geoffrey managed to remove said garments without a protest from the lady in question. Stavros, the blind beggar who is neither blind nor destitute, collaborates that the couple soon left the tavern and made their way, stumbling, towards the Hotel Athena, where hotel registries show Sir Geoffrey was staying. Of course, this wasn't Sir Geoffrey's first trip to the land of carnal delights. <laughs> As demonstrated by his conquest list, I discovered in his little black book. Oh, wait, oh, sorry, forgive me. Correction. Little black books that were neatly arranged in his study, living room, dining room, bedroom, of course the water closet, and finally the historical backup of black books created on a ditto machine. And if you don't know what that is, don't bother asking. It was clear he was a filthy slut, along with preferring a bachelor's life filled with no consequences for who he did and what he did to them or on them. I have noted that Sir Geoffrey also prided himself on disregarding any local or national ordinances against deviant sexual behavior that required an audience and use of pyrotechnics. But one thing stood out. He always seemed to have an escape plan that he employed consistently right after the completion of the sexual act. Uh, if everyone would, please see the process graph and GAN chart I have provided you as a pre-read for this lecture. They will demonstrate how Sir Geoffrey employed his supernatural modus operandi of escape by allowing his physical transformation to occur, thereby becoming an electrolysis's nightmare. If you do not have the pre-read, I am happy to provide copies upon request. What would happen is Sir Geoffrey's lower half became covered in a heavy pelt of sable-colored fur, and his feet would transform into hooves. But that's not all, as his rather rounded face thinned and elongated, contorting itself into a constant leer. 
while his ears and nose became significantly pronounced, not very pleasant at all. Finally, uh, his transformation would come to an end when these blackish horns protruded above his hairline. So at this moment, it was expected for the damsel currently occupying his bed to become greatly distressed, thereby prompting the maiden to rush out of the room for the sake of escape. Except for this time, as Sir Geoffrey discovered the woman tangled in the sheets, found his newly acquired physical traits not of the least bit alarming, but rather charming, applauding. After the transformation was complete and laughing in delight. The reason for her reaction was soon revealed when the woman herself presented Sir Geoffrey with her own transformation into a gorgon. Yes, you are correct. The woman was one of the two remaining gorgonian sisters. And before you ask, for propriety's sake, we will not mention which sister it was. Mm. Although, I will admit my tongue loosens up after a drink or two. Sir Geoffrey's mood quickly went from shock to tremendous relief, as the Gorgon did not turn him into a piece of statuary, because she noticed a part of Sir Geoffrey was already hard as stone. And she fancied having a bit of a go with the charming fawn. So after things quieted down, the Gorgon fell asleep, spooning Sir Geoffrey, and the fawn hatched a plan. He realized he had been presented with a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to not only become an author of great note, but to also expense his entire vacation to the newspaper. Now... This latter bit should come as no surprise to anyone in the supernatural community because fawns are well known for their obsessive coupon cutting and are said to be able to squeeze two pounds out of a single pence. He set his mind to charm and probe (laughs) the Gorgon for as many facts about the life and times of the creature in including details that are best left out for the sake of discretion and modesty. Two weeks later, after a tearful goodbye, the Gorgon charmed into believing that it would never work due to the woodland nature of a fawn and and the lack of space Sir Geoffrey's flat had for the unexpected statuary that could turn up when your roommate was a Gorgon. So the Gorgon exited Sir Geoffrey's life. And this obnoxious cad didn't even have the decency to wait and wave goodbye to the tearful and heavily veiled Gorgon. And he immediately sat down to write about his adventures, noting each and every tidbit the poor delusional creature had been charmed into revealing. The result was not an article or expose, but a blustery book published by that paper, titled Exposing the Gorgonian Truth, with the alternate title of Is that a writhing viper in our bed, or are you just happy to see me? Although panned by every supernatural book reviewer as a piece of filth, 
That was best suited to line the cage of an incontinent bog howler. The book was a smashing success. With the sort of people who didn't know which fork to use for the various courses of dinner, and were most likely to purchase books wrapped in brown paper. I, of course, read the book for research's sake. Included in the lurid work peddled as non-fiction were a myriad of tidbits and a surprisingly scientific catalogue of the habits, likes, and dislikes of the once-feared Gorgon. Public opinion against the book point to the liberties the author took to embellish his sexual prowess, because, I mean, anyone worth their weight in harpy tears knows that fawns are not known for their lovemaking technique. Uh, I've been told the, the unfortunate person falling under the fawn spell have often remarked that they have taken longer opening a jar of olives than it took for the fawn to reach <laughs> completion. I mean, why even bother taking off your clothes? Just stare at the poor tired piece of meat and that should be good enough. An excerpt of what demigod society were surprised to learn about Gorgons were as follows. Gorgons were incredibly talented gardeners. Boxwood hedges, no matter how overgrown, could be transformed into the most beautiful shapes with a few simple strikes of a Gorgon's forked tongue. And it was noted that even their fiery glance could cut through a tree limb ten inches thick. As for weeds, well, they certainly didn't stand a chance in a Gorgon's garden, which is why they never bothered to take root. Being ripped from the ground is one thing. Being burned into oblivion with a Gorgon glance was quite another. And yes, even though a Gorgon had their issues with their appearance, not always being aesthetically pleasing, flowers, crops, and anything that grew in a Gorgon's garden seemed to possess a supernatural beauty and robust constitution for overabundance of production. The other thing most didn't know about Gorgons was that they weren't always in the form of their horrible visage that they're known for. Now, I, I don't know as to whether or not this is because Athena's curse had weakened, or if this was something that the Gorgons had developed on their own. But when sensing danger, or, well, any situation that the Gorgon herself didn't particularly care for, uh, the Gorgon could transform into the ultimate statue-making machine. Otherwise, they appeared not only normal-looking, but they were, in fact, strikingly beautiful. Uh, one noted item that wasn't a surprise to readers was that Gorgons can be very temperamental. For example, the disappointment of receiving a sweater in a color that wasn't flattering for someone who sometimes sported a scaly green complexion could set off a Gorgon. But tell me, does anyone look good in orange? And for all that is graceful and beautiful in this world, please stop trying to convince me otherwise. All of this burnt amber and rust. Orange is orange, for goodness sakes. Mm. Readers were shocked to learn that Gorgons loved to host dinner parties. And potlucks. <laughs> And they had a hoarding problem when it came to 
Church recipe books authored by Lutheran or Baptist women. <laughs> Their favorite hors d'oeuvres uh, recipes include Bonnie Frederick's Ambrosia Salad, Granny Bird Paps, Pigs in a Blanket, <laughs> and, oh, for the exotic, Marsha Calhoun's Waikiki Meatballs. <laughs> Also, if you have some leftover ice or maybe some jello in a Tupperware bowl, give it to a Gorgon, because apparently they can make amazing sculptures out of it. Apparently, their dinner tables are a delight to behold, and seating charts are mulled over for weeks on end. Which is why a Gorgon could fly into a rage if one of her dinner guests didn't show up after RSVPing that they would. Now, this fact I don't have a problem with. At the very least, one should send a replacement if they're not going to be able to make it. Fashion followers were thrilled to find out that one of the Gorgon sisters was a fashion designer responsible for numerous fashion trends, followed by iconic fashion houses worldwide. Makes me wonder if a certain Gorgonian sister has her bags and put a straw hat on top of her head as she makes her way to Project Runway. Or at the very least, RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> this Gorgon sister was so talented and well thought of that a certain magazine editor-in-chief of what some refer to as the Fashion Bible often consults with her. And I'll give you one guess who she is. Where she doesn't wear Prada. <laughs> Some of the Gorgon's designs have been found on the red carpet of such notable events as the Cannes Film Festival, the Academy Awards, and the grand opening of several Planet Hollywood restaurants. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth I, Catherine the Great, Ethel Merman, and Phyllis Diller were favorite patrons of the designer. Some facts that got a few laughs from readers was that one of the Gorgon sisters was incapable of resisting a church bazaar or craft fair. And it has been well documented that she can make hundreds of little toilet paper covers in the shape of dolls sporting wide skirts in a single night. Woe be the person who passed the heavily veiled sister's table and did not purchase one of the toilet paper dolls, or a macrame plant holder in the shape of an owl, wire art depicting various Grecian monuments, or one of the numerous crocheted pot holders done in some of the most interesting, if not off-putting, designs. People were shocked to find out that Gorgons didn't fancy sexy negligees, preferring 100% cotton nightdresses that would have looked at home in Ma's closet on Little House on the Prairie. Another shocking entry that drew gas by the Supernatural Auxiliary Club for Non-Male Demigods was that the two surviving Gorgon sisters weren't terribly upset at the death of their sister Medusa at the hand of Perseus, but they were rather perplexed. 
at how hard it was going to be to find another couple to play bridge, Shanghai Rummy, Yuka, or Hearts with, which I am sure can be very challenging indeed. These and other more embarrassing secrets were revealed, and just when it looked as if Sir Geoffrey would get away with it, he suddenly disappeared, leaving no trace of his whereabouts. The betting pools of London, Paris, Milan, and Wichita, Kansas, didn't even attempt to figure out the odds on whether Sir Geoffrey went into hiding or if he had become a peeing fawn water sculpture. So, my dear audience, where is Sir Geoffrey? Did the fawn have an untimely death at the hands of a gorgon? Or is he still out there? playing that damn pan flute, ready to jump out and hump the leg of the nearest passerby. Make sure to bring olives. <laughs> More importantly, what happened to Sir Geoffrey's notes, which are rumored to have more tantalizing details about the reclusive Gorgons? Enough to fill two more books, and 